You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, Baruchah, this is a special troops of Boskim because of the Sechthus Eirvin, which many people believe. I've done it a number of times, and our guest here has done it uh, brilliantly as well, but often. Many people believe it's one of the more difficult Sechthus. In fact, some people say that's where they throw Dafyomi away. They go through Brochus and Shabbos, they slug through, and when they get to Erevin, they find it so difficult, so, so complex, that many times they don't get through the Masechus. And it does have a name of being one of the more difficult, intense Masechus. Now, but things have gotten easier. Things have gotten easier because there have been books and charts, and there's also have been uh, efforts, and our uh, the, uh, the, the person who I've asked to, to present on Erevin, one of my dear close friends, has been one of the trailblazers. He was really ahead of the curve in recognizing that this sort of sechta that had been this curiosity would now, along with all its details, be extremely relevant, especially as the communities would grow, Orthodox communities would grow, the need for an Erev was necessary, and an Erev that was done halachically correct. And because of that, Rabbi Bechapra, a number of years ago, actually, I have one of the original versions, Rabbi Bechapra, the little paperback version that you gave to me, of your first the first version of this modern Erev uh, in, in, in modern metropolitan areas. And it, it really was ahead of the curve, and it was a, really a bestseller. Uh, it has been recently uh, republished, I think, with a lot of updates and a lot of additions available at Feldheim Books. I, I, I sincerely, and you know that I'm, a, I'm quite a, a strong critic of, of literature, this is a good one. This is something which I think is, is effective, and it also gives you a historical perspective of what has been in the field and what was in the past. Fascinating. The pictures are great. The graphics are great. It's really a tremendous mafteach uh, to, to relate what you're learning on the page what's been happening, and how perhaps you can get an air of even in your city. Rabbi Yosef Hamil Bechafer is not only an author in, in many areas of halacha and chumash, Tanakh, philosophy, uh, and, and, and other great works, but as I said, he is, because of this work, he has become an expert that is called in regularly to check out, how's your air of Can I have an air He's gone to sites all over the country, maybe even uh, internationally, I'm not sure, to be able to examine the situation and advise what is what, how you can have a kosher error and how things might work. Now, he's also my dear close friend, and as I said before, uh, we have uh, we worked together on, uh, on manuscripts of, of Rishonim, and we were conferences uh, and partners in, in learning programs we have a program, I have to put a pitch in for our Rizma Daraisa, which is one of our more popular podcast offerings. And you can hear that almost every week where we fulminate and, again, try to uh, use our uh, attitudes and Torah learning, mostly our Beth Hoppers, I'm just really uh, an adjunct to that, to push some, I think, very interesting ideas that I think you might be interested in. But that, enough of the commercial for Rizma Daraisa. Now it's time. Uh, and again, I thank you for stepping in so late, because I called Rabbi Belchafer last night. Uh, it was close to 11 o'clock at night. And when I called him and I said, Rabbi Belchafer, 
please come and, and say this year now, especially as we're starting the second player of Averman, and everybody I'm sure is very interested in what you have to say, and graciously, and it's just indicative of what sort of sweetheart he is, that he agreed. So I hope all of us will, will appreciate our best offer. The mic is yours. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to uh, be able to speak to you. Um, I would like to uh, give some background information about uh, what exactly the problems were with, with Airbin and how I got involved in the first place. Uh, some of it appears in the book when the book it appears without names of names and places. The um, I grew up in one of the first cities and uh, towns, I should say, in Airbin, North America, which is West Hampton, New York. And I was present when they actually built the area in 1972, 71, 72, when they actually, and I was also present actually when they went to the town of Hempstead uh, board and were social issues, they rented out the rights to carry in the town of Hempstead, including West Hempstead at the time. Several years later, I was learning in about, that was when I was about 11, 12 years old. When I was in my uh, mid-20s, I was learning in Farakway, in Rishir Farakway's Kolo, in the uh, New York, and uh, at that time there was a posek in Shal Yashuv, uh, Moshe Dov Steins, who was uh, very much uh, one of the major postkim in the area. And he once said to my Chavusa myself, I worked with Ervin when I first got married uh, and was learning to call, I learned it from um, at night, the Eon with the Chavusa. And uh, he said to, uh, later on, when I met Rabbi Stein and spoke to him about Ervin, he said that he would give my chabusa and myself $10 if we would be able to identify the Arab from amidst the many wires which ran across the type tops of the poles in the Far Rockaway area, and it was impossible to identify the Arab. Really, one could not tell where, what exactly was there, what wasn't there, where it was going, where it was not going. And uh, it turns out that that Arab, which existed in the Far Rockaway at the time, even though it had been built by somebody who was repu- reputed to be a Tamil of the first caliber, was not kosher. And uh, often this happens with Arabin, which are sometimes built by Arab, by posting of the first caliber, that the Arabin are not kosher, not because they didn't know Echos Arabin, that happens sometimes too. Very often people with long white beards are not familiar with Alokos Arabin, despite the fact that they have long white beards, because it's an arcane and obscure area of Alok. But even if they are familiar with Echos Arabin, nevertheless, the first job is an Arabin goes the Shabbos, it may be considered the Arab of the Posek who put it up. After that, for Shabbos, for the subsequent life of the Arab, it's usually up to the people who are locally in charge of, of, of maintaining it to make sure that it's kosher every Shabbos. And almost every week, there are problems which arise because of uh, uh, issues where an Arab might be uh, struck by a car or there might be a... a uh, wind, uh, strong wind, or there might be construction. All these things will impact upon Erevin in a very negative way. And therefore, every week, the Erev has to be checked. It has no chazaka. No Erev actually can be assumed to be up just because it was up the week before, unless it's made completely out of real and actual walls. Sometimes, not always, when it's made up of real or actual riverbanks or hills, because natural structures can be used in making an Eruv, obviously, as long as they have the right proportions. So uh, uh, very often what happens is 
that the maintenance is not done properly. And when the maintenance is not done properly, of course, the area falls into disrepair. Very often, the people who are in charge of doing the maintenance are not doing the maintenance the way they're supposed to because either they have been poorly trained, they don't know exactly what they're doing, or they take the initiative on their own. And therefore, because they take the initiative on their own, they make fixes to the air, which are not necessarily sanctioned by the rabbinic authority locally, much less by the rabbinic authority who actually had the air built according to the specifications in the first place. This happens in, in Arabin throughout the country, particularly in Arabin, in places where in the hinterlands, beyond the uh, great uh, metropolitan areas, where rabbis don't necessarily spend much time. And I would say that in, uh, outside the New York area, a rabbi probably, or I would say the greater metropolitan areas, to be more precise, rabbis spend probably four, to four years or so in their jobs before they move on to other jobs. So the first two years, the rabbi is usually too preoccupied to get involved with the Ehud. He has so many other things, so many other spires burning that he has to put out. And the last two years, he's too preoccupied with finding his next job. So therefore, during that time, he's not really involved in the Ehud. So therefore, cities go outside, I should say towns and villages, and even uh, cities outside the major metropolitan areas can go years and years and decades and decades, we aren't yet up to centuries, someday we will be, without the error being seen by any rabbinical authority of any significance and, uh, and any stature, even the local one, and certainly not one from beyond the local area. So therefore, Erevin, outside the big cities, are very often uh, not in uh, good shape. In the big cities themselves, there are many issues which, involve, which are involved in Erevin. Ironically enough, in the biggest city of them all, in New York City, in, at least in Manhattan, there are, the, the Arabin are less of a problem. And let me distinguish here. There are two types of things which go on with Arabin. The question of whether an Arabin can be built, which is a question of whether there is a public domain or just arriving the Raisa within the Arab, which prevents an, an Arab being built unless the Arab exists in uh, real walls. And the Arabin, which uh, the other Arab question of the construction of the Arabin. In terms of a big city, uh, there are maybe sometimes issues of a of a problem having a public domain which prevents the building of air unless it's actually made up of walls and doors. But the construction of the air is not as big a problem, especially in a place like New York, where as a result of the Great Blizzard of 1888, there are no electrical lines above ground, in, at least in Manhattan. And I'm not sure about the, uh, the outer boroughs offhand. But I think the Arab bars do have a, a, a wooden electric poles. But that means that an Arab in Manhattan cannot utilize existing structures because there are no existing wires. So therefore, the Arab, Arab has to put up its own wires. And put up its own wires, then they're more likely to be kosher than if they are used pre-existing wires. And I have here in my new edition of the Arab in modern metropolitan era, September Arab, or just came off the press, I was fortunate to have many pictures given to me by people from organizations like the National Air Initiative, which is an organization led by Rabbi Borah Gabor, which is, uh, tries to work on, air, uh, on making Arabin more uh, 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 kosher, <laughs> and uh, also by private individuals. Uh, and uh, if you go through some of these scenarios in the back of the book where the pictures are, you will see cases in which um, Arabin have gone to pot over time. 
I'm not going to actually, uh, 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 I know I can share the screen and show it to you greater detail, but without doing that right now, I just want to show you how, how Erevin can grow into trees over time. The trees can go around Erevin, rendering them puzzle when they're not checked properly. This can happen in, uh, in the course of a couple of years. You can also have cases in which the, um, the wires are tied, like in this case over here, to the side of a pole as opposed to the top of the pole because somebody was maintaining that Eru obviously tried to fix it and did it the wrong way because we have a principle. Surah Sapesach, the form of the doorway, which is created by two upright beams and one cross beam, has to be Al-Gabov, has to be where the lintel of that imaginary doorway is above the two poles directly, not on the side of those two poles. And uh, therefore, if you have, an, uh, say, a string, which is tied, like in that case you just saw, to the side of an electric uh, pole, it's no good. It's not kosher, because it has to be over the top of the pole, not on the side of the pole. And uh, there are dozens of other such issues which arise in the course of building an air, which again, if left unmaintained over time or unchecked over time, lead to a major problem. They say in the name of the Chazunish and in the name of Yoshua Soloveitchik, I don't know who actually is the authentic uh, author of this statement, but they say that um, uh, there is no, so that nobody has ever seen a puzzle mikvah or a kosher eruv. By that we mean that a mikvah, we're very, very machmir in building a mikvah, obviously because there are severe issues involved in halachas, which concern with mikvahs and tumor and tara. So therefore, mikvahs are, bought, are constructed with numerous safeguards and redundancies. And they have, almost any mikvah you have today is built with to the utmost uh, uh, severe and mahudar and appropriate specifications. Whereas an Eruv has almost, has, um, uh, is always based on kulos. The question is how many kulos you have. But uh, 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 there's very little leeway, and therefore, since things can go wrong over the course of time very quickly, so therefore, again, it's very rare said, Kazrish slash Yoshever, to find a kosher Eruv. So uh, the um, question is so why? Would you be allowed to carry at all? If I'm telling you now that you're not that you're, there are problems involved, I'm actually causing you a big problem yourself. Because nor if I had not told you that there are problems involved in Aruvin, you could have gone on with blithely in a merry way and continued carrying a local Arab, assuming that it's kosher, and then you would only have the status of what we call Hilda Shabbos, Misasik. What does Misasik mean? It means you think that there's a kosher Eruv in, in the place. You're carrying because you think there's a kosher Eruv. And this Asik is, uh, is on, in the Shabbos, uh, other areas as well, is exempt and is not considered to be violating a trans uh, uh, prohibition because Melechus Machshabbos also The Torah forbade doing intentional work where you know what you're doing and you might not realize it's wrong because you're shogate. Because you forgot that it's Shabbos, you forgot that this specific malacha is this specific form of labor is prohibited. But if you think you're doing some permitting, because you think it's uh, could be Shabbos, but you're carrying in an eruv, 
So then it's not called Melechus Machshevis. It, it's lacking in the intentionality of doing an Avera. And I want to stress it because it's a little bit confusing. There's a constant Shabbos of Shogun. Shogun means I forgot it was Shabbos or I forgot that this is prohibited. And that if somebody does an Avera of Shogun on Shabbos, they violate Shabbos unintentionally because of one of those reasons. It needs uh, needs kapara. They need some sort of form of atonement. They have to bring the time base of mikdash existed. They're bringing carbon chafas because they inadvertently transgress the prohibitions of Shabbos. But if a person is a misasik, that means they know this is prohibited, and they know that it's Shabbos. But they think prohibition doesn't apply to me because I'm an enabler. It's not an issue. I. It's like somebody who the class case tomorrow is I, I pl- pluck up some grass in the field and I think, well, it's not a problem because this grass is already cut. I'm cut, cutting, taking up cut grass. It's no longer considered no to the ground. So there I don't realize that what I'm doing is a malacha, forgetting the, but that I think it's okay now because it's Shabbos. I don't realize that it's Shabbos and I forget now that, that, that this is a malacha. Yeah, I know Shabbos, I know it's Malacha, I think it's okay because of the circumstances. The grass is already cut. The air is a kosher air. So if somebody carries an air not knowing that, uh, thinking, if somebody carries an air thinking there's an air of there, so then they're not, they don't need any atonement. In fact, that's one of the reasons why if the air goes down on Shabbos, it's customary not to let people know that the air went down. Because the people, people are not going to all find out immediately and cease and desist from carrying they run the risk of going and violating Shabbos deliberately, or certainly uh, not even not deliberately by by not accepting the news which has been presented to them that the air was down. But if they think the air was still up, so then they're misasic. They're not and they're not doing anything wrong because again the prob- the parameters of malachis machshevis deliberate or intentional labor don't apply in that case. As a matter of fact, Rishon Shef is very interested in tshuva. The Russian chef was asked, or I don't know if it was a question, but he was uh, he posed it as a question. He says, why does the Rav ever have to build a neighbor? Let him just say there is a neighbor. And then anybody in the town can carry it, right? Because they all think there's a neighbor, right? He actually posed it not from, from a different perspective, not the Masonic perspective, but he, pres- uh, he presents it from the perspective of a showgate in the Rabona. There's a well-known Nesivas and Mishpat and other poskim who hold that there is no concept of no necessity to, for atonement when you uh, violate a drabanon, the shogeg, unintentionally. Why is that? Because the Torah says, in, when it grants the authority to the, to the sages, the Torah says, the Torah, the Rucha, etc., lo sosuri amin usmo. The authority granted to the sages is defined as do not deviate from that which they say. The Sivas and Mishpat says there's no such thing as an unintentional deviation. There's only such thing as a deliberate deviation. Deviate, deviating by its very definition means a deliberate deviation. So therefore, it says in the Sivas, and um, Bengal and others have this, uh, this position, that you're only considered to be in violation of the Rabbana if you are deliberately transgressed, I should say, you only need atonement for violating the Rabbanon if you deliberately violated the Rabbanon. If you know it's prohibited, I do it anyway. Because that's a form of rebellion. If you're doing it inadvertently or unintentionally, that wouldn't be a form of rebellion. 
because obviously you don't know that there's some problem here, which will cause you to be intentional in your evolution. So then uh, there's another interesting uh, corollary of this, which was what Herschel Schechter brings up, which is that's the case. If I know that something is, let's say, you know, Rabbi Kivalevich, as we know, is a Mashiach Kashrus, let's say Rabbi Kivalevich knows that in one of the products with which he gives Hajgacha, there is an Issa de Rabbonam. There's something there which is also Mid Rabbonam, not Mid Rabbonam. Let's say there's something from Eretz Yisrael from which Chumas and Mises have not been taken off. Chumas and Mises is on the Zev de Rabbonam. They're biblically mandated, not Torah mandated. And Rabbi Kivalevich knows that. He doesn't tell anybody. And anybody who eats it now is eating something which is uh, not kosher and be the rabbonah. But they're shogate. They, they don't know. And it's, this is, there's an advantage in this, which is there's halacha that by kash, by, by kashrus, there's no, there's no there misasik. It says misasik v'chalavim v'arayos chayav shekein nene. Somebody who, is, who, who, who thinks that something is mutter. And it thinks that this food is mutter, and therefore eats it. He doesn't even have to look uh, because Miss Asik like he would by Hill Shabbos. And there's a very interesting question of the of the lumbus, of the rationale of this concept of Miss Asik Chalem Arayas Chayev Shkenena. It's considered to be you can't be considered Miss Asik because you have pleasure. Okay, very interesting concept, which I, I'm not sure I fully understand myself, to be honest with you. But obviously, require requires substantial amount of explanation. But that's only if it's misasic. If it's choking in the rabbanon, so then it doesn't matter if you're getting ple- pleasure or not. The very fact, the very fact that you you uh, assume that you're doing what the rabbis want, and only Rabbi Kivalevich knows that you're not doing what the rabbis want, so you're a shogate. Since you're a shogate, so then well, what's the problem? So that's a very interesting question. Why would you? Well, I would never tell you that there's no. That there's no you know, error, but I tell you there is an error. And there's kosher error. Why did I ever tell you something is also rabbanon? I tell you it's not also rabbanon. It's perfectly fine. Yochanan mitzvah. Let the, the humble people eat and be satisfied. So Rabbi Rishon Shechter uses a corollary of his very interesting principle. It's not a corollary, it's an application. Uh, many years ago, when I was learning in the Mir Yeshiva in uh, Flatbush, I decided on a lark to answer an ad which appeared in the Jewish Week and apply to be the Orthodox rabbi and the, the rabbi of the Orthodox Minion at Harvard. And, um, which I think still exists to this very day. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I thought it would be cute, but I did think it would be cute. And I put as my phone number, I remember this very well, my phone number to, to reach me was the payphone in the Mir Yeshiva Brooklyn, one, uh, one of the payphones out in the uh, coat. And they called me, interviewed me on the phone. And it was a quandary what to do because I had no intention of actually taking this position. So uh, at that point, at that point in history, 1984, 85, Rabbi Shechter, Rabbi Willig, and several other Rashi Shim Nwayu had come out with a tshuva against uh, women's uh, prayer groups. And they said women's prayer groups are forbidden. The reason why they forbade women's prayer groups is because of Ziv HaTorah. There was a Maharshal, Shlema Kluger, in Babakama, Dafla Meches. The Maharshal there said, not Shlema Kluger, sorry, Shlema Luria. Maharshal in the Yamsha Shlema says that um, there is, the Gemara there which says that there were two, the Romans sent two messengers to learn the entire Torah. And they taught the, the Chazal, for whatever reason, taught them the entire Torah. 
And the whole messenger said, you know, the entire Torah makes sense to us, except one for one halacha. Halacha which says that uh, if a, the ox of a Jew gores the ox of a fellow Jew, so then the owner of the goring ox has to pay the owner of the ox which was gored. If the ox of a Jew gores the ox of a non-Jew, so then the owner of the ox, the Jewish owner of the ox, does not have to make compensation to the non-Jews. So, so the Romans said that halacha is the only one which we do not accept. We obviously believe it was. Uh, Unethical to have to pay if a Jewish uh, Jew's uh, ox was gored, but not if a non-Jew's ox was gored. And they say, "We're going to do you a favor. When we go back to Rome, we won't tell them this aloha. We'll keep it to ourselves, so that you don't get into trouble as a result." So that's the end of the Gemara. So Shlomo the Marshal asked, "Why didn't they just lie? They should have just told him that that's not aloha. They should have said, you know, Shore Eu doesn't exclude Shore." In fact, there's another drasha that says uh, If you're uh, an ox of a regular Jew, or the ox which belongs to the base of then they don't have to pay. They could have just taught them that version of the halacha, not the version Why they teach them this? So the Marashal says an amazing story. It's not clear we actually the passing like this in, uh, in in fact, but he says. To, to, to falsify a Torah precept is Yeharik Valyavon. You may not falsify a Torah precept even under penalty of death. If the Torah says something, then you have to, uh, you have to spell that out and you have to, um, you, you have to, first of all, you're asked about it, you must respond authentically, truly, and you have to tell them what the Torah is all about. Um, I believe there's, uh, there's a story, um, that, uh, I don't remember exactly. It goes maybe Rabbi Kibblevich remembers it better than I do. That uh, in uh, in the Zeros Tachtatat in uh, 1648, uh, one of the kedoshim was of Shamshon Ostropolia. And Shamshon Ostropolia, the came to him and said, "I'm going to give you a choice: either you're you're going to die, or that the you're going to, something I forget about not learning Torah, falsifying Torah." And so, and uh, Shamshon Ostropolia was said, "No." Uh, I should die, may, or many Jews should die, and nothing from the Torah should ever be uh, but, uh, 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 canceled or distorted. So um, uh, that, so the, uh, the, the, the that, remember the story? Better than that? All right, different time. Okay. So Rosh Hashanah so wrote and said that, and the other Rosh Hashanah, they said to, uh, to say that women's prayer groups are have any validity or substance whatsoever, it is a ziyufatol. It's a distortion of Torah. The Torah it violates the uh, principles set down by the Marashal in Babakama, and therefore one must uh, oppose them. So I said uh, at the time I figured, oh, okay, this is my way out. I said that I just understand that at Harvard they have a women's prayer group, and uh, I, you know I, this uh, this uh, responsible of Herschel Schachter just came out, and therefore. I regret that I can't actually take the position because of this response which forbids women's prayer groups. And in, uh, in a, an immortal classic manifestation of Harvard arrogance, the people on the other side of the line, they were harumphed and they said, yes, we know about the response. We were not consulted about it. So, uh, but that was enough to end that uh, conversation. And he ended, um, ended uh, on, a, on a positive note, but that was, fortunately, that was my way of getting out of 
this uh, situation I put myself in. So Rabbi is saying that he says the Rav cannot go and say that there isn't a roof or that something is kosher if it's not if there's no eruv or if eruv is possible or if the thing which is which is represented as being kosher is in fact had something which is asimid rabbanah. And uh, he says, as a result, of course, yes, you cannot come, you cannot say a possible eruv is kosher. You can't say eruv doesn't exist, does exist. Which leads him also to, the, uh, to to another question, which is, okay, you're a new Rav in town. You came into a town, and the, uh, the old Rav clearly left the Apostle I was once got a call from a, ta- a city uh, in the Midwest uh, where the uh, old Rabbanim, who I put up the air 40 years earlier, had either died or moved away. And they didn't know exactly where the air went anymore. So they, in all those years, they mean some people are saying Arab is kosher, but nobody knew exactly where the Arab went. So the question is, if you come into the city and you know the Arab is possible, do you have to come week one and say that this is a possible Arab? And say my predecessor hoodwinked all of you all, all this time, or which probably not a good political move for a new rabbi. So um, Reversal Shachter has an interesting sack, which he says that for, for there's a, ma- a certain span of time, say six months, in which it's still called the old rabbi's Eruv. It's not known yet as your Eruv, because everybody knows you're new in town. So by the time that time elapses, and it starts to become known as your Eruv, by that time you have to have fixed it. So as long as it's still considered to be the old rabbi's Eruv by the community, you have to look. The moment it's considered to be your Eruv, then already you're responsible to make sure it is actually kosher Eruv and not to falsify the Torah by presenting a fossil Arab of it as if it's kosher. This is actually a very big Nisoyim. It's not so simple to, uh, for a Rav to actually come in and do that. But uh, the, uh, the point is that uh, uh, the Rav is very much responsible for the Arab. And this brings up to, brings it back to my point before, which is the reason why most people are allowed to carry in an Arab is because most people can rely on the rabbi. If you have a rabbi who you regard as your posuk and he's your Shemayim, or your rabbi in your community, then if he tells you the Arab is kosher and the Arab is not kosher, he's the one who's going to hell. You're not. He's going to fry because he's presenting something which is possible as if it's kosher. You go come to Shemayim after 120 years, they say, Rabbi, why did you carry this Arab? It's Chazer trait. You say, because Rabbi so-and-so told me I could carry. It's not my fault. He told me I can carry. He passed it for me. I rely on this sack and other things. Why am I not relying on matters of abatement? Which is a good point. And I think it's a true point. Uh, the problem but then that means that you have to actually know who the, who, that the person who put up the air, or the person who maintained the air, or the person who's actually in charge of the air is somebody who's a responsible person. And, uh, this is what I tell my kid, my kids and other people as well. All, all, all my kids carry in the month's air. I don't. So, um, uh, and they don't really, the truth is they, they don't really ask me whether they should carry or not. But when they ask me, um, then I would say, yes, you can carry. You can rely on the Rav Amachshir of the Erevus, Rabbi Steinmetz from Vishnitz, because as far as you're concerned, he's a legitimate rabbi. You would eat in his restaurant too. So would I. Happens to me that if you know too much about Erevin, then you're not going to rely on the rabbi, because then you know more possibly than the rabbi himself, or you know more about the possible pitfalls. So then, Perhaps 
the rabbi, some of one who wrote a book on Erwin, should not rely on the local rabbi who might know less than he does. But that's all, that's a relative thing. They say, in fact, that Rabbi Kilevich can probably confirm this to you, that people who are involved in kashrus don't usually eat in, in the places where they, <laughs> in any place other than the place that they give their own hashkocha, and perhaps not even there. Rabbi Kilevich and I were associates of a certain rabbi many years ago who gave a hefsher uh, in uh, Chicago, over my MS now, and uh, it, was, it came out that that hefsher was a, was a questionable hefsher, and they came to this rabbi and asked the rabbi, how, what, how can you eat from your own hefsher? And the rabbi said, oh, no, no, I eat fish. It's much more healthy anyway. He doesn't eat from the meat under the Arizona Ashkocha. So the, um, so the uh, uh, yes, if a person, uh, very often a, per- a person knows too much, is in much greater, uh, has more difficulty, and that's why I never went into the halachas of kashrus in the same depth as it went to the because that would probably prevent me from actually being able to eat anywhere. This way, I hope that the rabbis will give the hefsher burn and not me. So coming back to one of the, the uh, issues which involve Erevin, you actually, if you, uh, you know, there's a story that um, the play where Menachem Kasher brings down, I have not seen this in any secular source. Menachem Kasher brings down that Plato was once w- w- walking down the street with a student of his. And um, the student so he says to the student, what do you see? So he said, I see a horse. And Plato says, you're never, you're never going to be a philosopher. philosopher. Forget it. You might as well just leave. So he said, and he said, the way it sounds in Hebrew is so much better than it sound, the way it sounds in, in English. So I'm going to say it in Hebrew. It says, Shani esus, ani esus, ani shebo. When I see a horse, I don't see a horse. Plato is famous for the idea, the notion of ideas versus forms, Homer and Sura. So he said, when I see a horse, I don't see a horse. I don't see the Homer of the horse. I see the Tsura of the horse. I see the concept of horseness, horse kite. When I see the the, uh, the um, I see the horse. So I, 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 when I walk down the street, it's not quite the same thing. When I walk down the street, I don't see electric poles. I see everything, everywhere I go. And uh, of course, I immediately when I see electric poles, I think, okay. How was this electrical going to fit into being an Arab? Is it fit into being an Arab? And if you actually look at electricals that way, in many communities in North America, you will actually see that many of them are um, are not kosher. They're Arab in there and they're not kosher. And the primary problem usually has to do with the fact that, unfortunately, the electrical and cable companies which build, which use the electricals, they must be anti-Semitic. Because if they were pro-Semitic, they would make sure every single pole has a wire which goes directly atop the top of the pole. And they don't ensure that. Especially the cable television people. Their wire is always much lower down on the pole and on the side of the pole. And because of the danger of dealing with electric wire, usually we'll use the cable television wire, which is the lowest wire on the pole, to make our Teresa Pesach. And that, that pole, that, that wire is always on the side of the pole. So that means in order to use it, we have to we have to have a lechi. We have to have a pole going up under that wire, and it has to be directly under that wire in order that it, in order that it should be able to be make that perfect form of a doorway. If you will go to your local eruv, I, I don't know where, where people who are going to be involved in this program, either hearing it or watching it, or whatever the case may be, live. But if you go to your local eruv, it's a worthwhile. Uh, um, exercise to see 
if there are places where in all places the lechi, the, the, the pole is directly underneath the wire where it should be, or is it somewhere off to the side? And in many cases, it's off to the side, especially because in the urban as they were built in, in, in the early American period, back in the 1970s or so, the, they used the principle in halacha called good asik. Good asik mechitza means we draw the wall up. And that means that if you have a short wall and it ends at 40 inches, 32 according to Reb Chaim Noah, which is the height of 10 fachim, it's as if it goes all the way up to the sky. The joke which Yitz Greenberg tells, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, he says that uh, for his father used to tell him the joke that uh, there was once a guy who came to the police station on Sukkot and said there was a burglary in his house. So he was stolen from a Sukkah. And the police asked him, um, is, was your Sukkah uh, cl- enclosed? And he said, of course it's enclosed. So they came to, the, to his house and they, show, so they said, this is not enclosed, this Sukkah is totally open. So the, the fellow says, what do you mean? It's totally closed. Here I have the wall goes up because of good asik, goes uh, it's, uh, to the schach. Here it's closed because of lava, three tvachim across, less than three tvachim across. And here there's a tzuras Pesach. So everything is closed up halachically. Even though actually the sukkah can be a very open structure intangibly, so, but nevertheless, it's closed up halachically. So how we close up halachically very often is to gurasik. We build a short post, which is like uh, 10 tvachim high. And we say it's as if it goes all the way up to the heavens. And what happens when you do that is you have problems which are like this, which is, and this actually is an anti-swell. Somebody sent me from some saying that it's a yeah, where the where the post splits off from where it's supposed to be, or it beards off from where it's supposed to be. And in that case, it's not a good, there's no good asset. It doesn't go up. It's supposed to be under a wire, which is much further up on the pole. But it's not because good asset goes directly up from the top of wherever your pole is. And the pole is off like this one over here. So then it's going directly up from somewhere well beyond where the wire is. And this is, a, a, this is a problem which occurs in, in is likely to occur in all, any air which is built with short uh, short where you're relying on gudasik to extend all the way up to the heavens. It also occurs, it, it can also occur with l'chayayim uh, which are on a, a, a longer, uh, which are long, which go almost all the way up to the top. Because if the, this is something which um, years ago when uh, we were both in Chicago, they built an Arab in, um, in a certain suburb, which was, had all, uh, uh, much of what my original edition of the book was built on this Arab, which was Puzzle Limahadrin. There's no question. It was totally and completely Puzzle. And it, it was beautiful how many ceilings there were in the Arab. It gave me material for the entire book, so the entire pamphlet at the time. So the, um, and it was built by a rabbit with a long white beard. Uh, uh, and uh, so, but the, the poles in that Eruv were all, many of them were at an angle, the electric poles. You look at electric poles, it, it's stunning how, what, what weird angles they come at. And the pictures I put just in this edition, sometimes the electric poles look like this. You have one pole, the electric company decides to fix the pole by attaching another pole, right? And they come off at very weird angles. And if you have, uh, if you were to put a, a lechi on this pole over here, let's say, and one which has an angle over here where the arrow's facing. So then, 
that lechi, if that lechi stops anywhere beneath the wire, it's going to be possible because the grassic would then be drawn up from wherever the lechi stops. And wherever the lechi stops, then the, whatever wire you draw up, draw up, it's going to be perpendicular to the ground at a 90 degree angle. And therefore it's going to, in other words, again, even if the lechi itself is on an angle, the grassic is not drawn up together with the angled pole, the angled lechi, for the angled lechi stops, Grassic immediately starts going perpendicular from the end, from the tip. And therefore, the Grassic will never hit the wire, which is on an angle on the pole. It hits the pole itself. And therefore, the air was possible at the time. Um, I wrote a letter to that. I asked, actually, a friend of ours, uh, myself, who uh, made a chasna last night, uh, to uh, go to the, um, to go to that rabbi along my beard and ask him, what we had his source was that because he held a good eye could be made on an angle. And it is some um, three years later and I still am waiting for an answer. Never received an answer on that one because there is no answer because there is no way Grass can go on an angle. I think we're about out of time here, if I can understand correctly. Uh, okay, I well, for well, Rabbi, I, I, I muted myself and... Um because I was just enjoying, and I hope everybody else here uh, got the same type of Hanot. I, I do, and, I, and I, I wanted to just, first of all, I think everybody who is listening here and in the future can see that what Rabbi Bechoffer is able to take out of his pocket. And there's a, there's a lot more there. And, and obviously, uh, this is an area which is large and huge, and it has wonderfully interesting questions, and I know that you can provide a lot of direction. I want to ask just one thing. I don't know if everybody else was wondering. And you, you, you were talking about the original question: Why tell people that the Arab is possible? So you said Rav Shechter said it's a a shogeg on a darabonon. Now the reason why it's a darabonon is because the reason why it's a darabonon is because the rishus that we're talking about is only a karmelist, correct? Correct. Okay. So even when you were speaking about mesaseik. You were talking about being Masasek also in an Easter Therabonim. You're not talking about putting up an Arab on something that was a Rishus Arabim. It doesn't work. No, but theory would work. Masasek would work by Rishus Arabim Darais also. Right. So you're right. I should make that distinction. Masasek would work even by Rishus Arabim Darais. Shogig the Rabbana only works obviously. Which is why Rav Shechter probably used that terminology. Although it may well be, yes. Okay. I just want everybody, and maybe I'm wrong. But if you have something which is a true Rishus Arabim Daraisa, well, can you, uh, unless you have uh, what you had in your Rishalayim, Bisman Chazal, you wouldn't be able to uh, be mat or such a spot, right? Uh, you would have to put up walls and doors. Right, that's what I mean. Which yeah. means doors and walls in Yerushalayim, here. where you have Sharim that are, that are able to lock at night. You don't have right. that. I have a picture so really, even though your Lumtus and Misasik is, is correct, um, it's, it's not necessary over here because we're talking about a yes. 100%. You're correct. Yes. That, uh, I, mean, I like your, your Kiddush is, 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 is interesting, um, which is true. In terms of, let me just say uh, <laughs> that, you know, the idea, I think we're Schechter, I don't know if the rest of you uh, are in agreement with me here, but it sounds pretty arbitrary. When is it uh, Bechoffer's Arab and when was it the rabbi, the, the earlier rabbi, right? How are you supposed to? How are you supposed to be Meshire that? That I think is quite a. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, I think I, I think you said six months, but I might be mistaken. Uh, just yeah. before you, uh, I want to show you this picture. 
Okay, it's like you see, this is a picture from Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. And there, if you can see it, there's a canister on the side of that pole. Keeping it straight. That canister, I tried to vandalize the canister. It was not successful. Then inside that canister, there's a tarp. And that tarp can be pulled across Amsterdam Avenue. And that was put up in, uh, by Rabbi Schechter in the YUA roof in order to take into account the potentiality that perhaps Amsterdam Avenue is just around the right side. And it's just around the right side requires a delis, requires a door. Here is your door. That tarp and that canister, which theoretically could be pulled across uh, Sam Avenue and close it off as a door. Wow. Now, I speak about that. That is a very questionable. That actually works. It can only be regarded as a chumrah, not as something which works in the Karadin. But there you have it. That's how they... He says the door is there because there's sort of like a, a way to find the tent that you can spread across. Yeah. If it's not there, if it's not spread across, what sort of door is it? I don't get it. Because one of those that Dallas have Uyolino. That's what Uyolino means. Most folks would say Uyolino means you could close it every night, illegally, officially. Not that you could take this, this tarp and at the middle of the, the you know December 25th, run it across the street, and there are no cars, and quickly run it back again. But that's what they're trying to use as a Chumrah. I see. I see. That's quite a. But again, I. I, I I guess we have to be makertov that so much has been done uh, in, in really elucidating this from the way it was way back. What was it in St. Louis, Rabbi? That was one yes, of the... Yes, right? so, uh, We've come a long way. Yes. So, my friends, uh, I think that we've uh, definitely touched the tip of this iceberg, the tip of this lechi, uh, and taking it all the way up ad roi mashamayim. Uh, I, I want to thank you again, Rabbi Beth Aver, and uh, for giving us this very illuminating uh, outlook on the difficulties, the problems, the halachic issues, and the personal issues. And um, I should just say, just to end this, that the rabbi with the long white beard, uh, who I know who you're talking about, that you know that I happen to uh, uh, be very close with this rabbi. Um, and it, it would be, I think, uh, incorrect to just say that he refused to give you an answer. I think that there were other other considerations involved as well. And I think part of it was his reliance on, on, on the people. And let me just, on that note, ask you one question. You say that we needed to be checked. Is there a sheer of how often the air has to be checked? Because with Shitosla, maybe it should be checked daily. Why, why is every week good enough just because it's right before, because it's right before Shabbos? That's really the, the, the thing, right? We assume it's right before Shabbos. If obviously, if an Arab would constantly have a radio so you find every week after Shabbos that's immediately after Shabbos is puzzle, and you have a big problem. Yes, but it's it's a it's a logical thing. I mean, it's a shikla das, I should say. It's a question of judgment. Um, usually, people will assume that uh, if it's unpacked on Friday, they remain intact uh, for the Shabbos. It was there in Silver Spring. I was told years ago. I don't know if it's still true. That if they have a three-day yontif, Friday, Thursday, Friday, and then Shabbos, they will not use their. They will declare the air of unusable for that Shabbos, because they would have checking on Wednesday. They consider it to be too uh, far in advance of Shabbos to maintain the chazaka. Okay, I know in the city where you live in Elizabeth, they have a minute that one year, one Shabbos a year, they they take down the air uh, altogether. 
they say there's Shalot Yishtakach first Eber and Eber and Yisro. Yeah. It's a good thing because... Once when I was teaching MTA, I did a Shabbaton with uh, my 11th graders in the Lower East Side, and uh, for many of them, it was the first time in their life they were without an Eru for Shabbos. They, were, they, couldn't, they didn't know there was such a thing as not having an Eru. Which is, yeah. which again, another time we'll, we'll talk about, even before the, the modern Eru era, there of course was uh, a big issue between the Chesidah and the Litvish of Boskim, uh, in the 19th century, how much we should rely. As, as cities became bigger, there was a, a great debate, and part of it was a philosophical debate about allowing these everything to happen. So, Rabbi Bechaber, I want to thank everybody that was here with us and uh, for this edition, the special edition of Jewish Supplies. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 